Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says... I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation." Thanks so much, Andrew, and uh, great to be with you again. Uh, as Walter said beforehand, the title on the front, Jesus Searching for God, uh, that, that it's the importance of uh, understanding grammar, isn't it? The colon is so important in this, uh, in this statement in terms of understanding where we're going. Uh, but today, let me just say, what I'm looking at is a section from the second half of Matthew chapter 12. Some of you will have been in Bible studies this week, covering the whole second half of that chapter. And I've just uh, narrowed it down. There's a lot in this, this uh, whole chapter, and I thought we'd just focus down, um, although it's all tied together. Just to let you know, there is a Q&A session afterwards. So if you've got questions about the part we're dealing with or maybe something that came up in your Bible study group, there'll be a chance to ask those questions, and I'll probably refer you on to Scott so he can answer them. All right? So uh, especially if it's about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Scott's just itching to get into that one. Um, the passage is printed in front of you. There's an outline in the leaflet uh, for you to follow. But as we uh, get into it, let me just lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a, you're a gracious God. You, you speak to us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in your Son. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll give us hearts that listen uh, to your word, that, that hear uh, what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, I uh, took a trip to Sydney when the borders were open. And when I arrived at the airport, I jumped in a taxi, had about a 25-minute drive to where I was going. And the taxi driver asked me what I was doing in Sydney, who I was, you know, and what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm here on Christian ministry. And at that point in his, uh, 
his gentle sort of way, he started mocking me uh, for being a Christian and being a pastor. Uh, I figured this wasn't his first rodeo and uh, he, yeah, he had his, his stick all worked out. So this is what he said. He said, uh, he didn't quite put it this way, but he thought Christians were a bit stupid. Right? And this was the reason. He said, God, as far as he understood, this is what Christians believe. God becomes a man. Uh, he has to, God has to eat to survive. God gets tired, you know, and has to rest. God has to go to the toilet, you know. <laughs> How do you figure that? You know, like, and he started talking about some of those sort of observations. He said, what sort of God is like that? Now, it turned out he was a Muslim. Uh, which I suspected, and I found myself thinking as I engaged with him, what could I say to him that might, you know, compel him to think again about who Jesus is and to reflect again on the nature of the gospel? So I talked, I said, from my point of view, the focus is on Jesus, and I talked about the importance of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, at this point, actually, I didn't know he was a Muslim, uh, and I talked about the importance of him dying on the cross to deal with our sin, our rejection of God. And he moved from being sort of gently mocking to being quite fired up at that point. Like he really got quite stirred up in terms of our conversation. He said, how could it be just or fair that an innocent person should have to suffer for guilty people? Right? That's what he said. Uh, and of course, as a Muslim, uh, he was being accurate to the Quran. Uh, Surah 35 in the Quran says this, No bearer of burdens will bear the burdens of another. And he explained to me that he would take the punishment for his own sins. That would be the fair thing to happen. Now, I suspect most of us have had that sort of experience as we've had conversations with other people. Trying to explain to people, to convince people about the claims of Jesus and why we should, should uh, why the people we're talking to should engage with them. You know, and for me, I keep thinking, what does it take to change people's minds and hearts? Now, Maybe today uh, you're here and you're not convinced about the claims of Jesus. Yeah, maybe you're, here in, you're an atheist and you might be a bit like the journalist Philip Adams. He says this about his own convictions. He's an atheist, well-known one. And he says, we, we just are for a little while and then we aren't. Right? It's not philosophically deep, but it accurately captures the picture. Or maybe you're here and you're an agnostic just not enough proof to push you over the line. Well, what would it, what would it take? What would it take? We turn to the second half of Matthew 12 and we see people searching for, uh, searching for God, asking Jesus to prove that he's God. Okay, let's dig into it together. Uh, verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Prove who you are so we can believe, right, is at the heart of what's going on here. Now, when I read that on the face of it, I think, 
That seems so reasonable, don't you think? <laughs> it's such a reasonable request. If you get a, um, uh, you know, someone calling you up at home and uh, the person on the other end of the phone says, look, I'm, I'm George, I'm from the Australian Taxation Office, we've worked out that you actually owe a debt to the tax office, I'm bringing to let you know it's $3,758 of unpaid tax, and so we're just trying to sort that out with you right now. I'm wondering if you can transfer the appropriate funds uh, to the Australian Taxation Office to clear your debt, otherwise we'll have to issue proceedings, right? Now, if you're in the situation where you receive that sort of call, it may be that you want proof before you transfer the money, you know, like... like the Australian Tax Office never makes those calls, right? They don't do it that way. And so obviously you'd need proof. And so at this point you think, well, surely blind faith when it comes to Jesus is not sensible. Isn't it reasonable for them to say, yeah, we want to see some evidence for, for your claims. But Jesus is absolutely scathing about the request. Right, verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. It doesn't seem welcoming of this request. Now, now, why? And the why comes very clearly when you think about what's led up to this moment in the gospel. Even in the section we're looking at, uh, just before the section we're looking at in this uh, today, verse 22 of chapter 12, is a blind a mute man who's possessed by a demon, and Jesus heals him and casts out the demon. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who ask this question, they say, oh, he's done it by Satan's power. And Jesus said, hey, just explain that to me. How, how does Satan win by fighting against himself? Why do, you, why do you attribute the works of God and his spirit to Satan at this point? Why can't you see it? Plainly, this is the power of God. Or if you go back earlier in the Gospel to chapter 9, there Jesus raises a dead girl back to life. Uh, he gives the blind their sight. He heals a cripple. Right? This, the, Jesus has been doing extraordinary miracle after extraordinary miracle all the way up until this point. And the Pharisees and the teachers come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign, Jesus. You know What? You know, where have you been? You must have been hiding under a rock. Um, and you get the point that's happening here? They're treating Jesus like, like a pet dog. You know, roll over Jesus, play dead Jesus, beg Jesus, give us a sign, Jesus. Do, do what we want you to do, right? Controlling Jesus. See, the point is they won't believe. They actually refuse to believe? Verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. And then Jesus goes on and he says, let me tell you the sign that you are provided with that is absolutely clear, the complete proof that I am the one, the Messiah, that God has sent into this world, the rescuer. Verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Now, as far as I can work out, Jonah is actually the only figure in the Old Testament, a prophet or otherwise, that Jesus explicitly compares himself with. Right? As far as I can tell, the only one. And I want to say that seems a little surprising to me because when you look at the book of Jonah, he is a rebellious ratbag. Right? He really is not someone you would think is your model to imitate. He's called by God to go to Nineveh so that he can preach uh, basically a message of repentance to that city, that big city. And instead, instead of going to Nineveh, he goes exactly the opposite way. Instead of going across land, he goes down to the Mediterranean, jumps on a ship and tries to escape so that he doesn't have to do the very thing that God wants him to do. There's a storm uh, that comes on uh, this boat and he is thrown overboard so that the, the boat can be actually saved from the storm. And God provides a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And it's God's judgment on Jonah. He spends three days in the belly of this, this fish. Now, let me say, some people get a bit distracted. They think, uh, did the Mediterranean have such big fish? You know, they get caught up on that sort of thing. Understand the book of Jonah is not about big fish, right? It is about uh, the very work of God in providing grace and a message for people to repent. And Jonah is caught up in that. It's all about Jonah uh, rejecting the word of God and disobeying God. But Jesus says, here is your sign. Just like Jonah, the son of man, Jesus, I will be buried three days in the heart of the earth. That's your sign. So what does this sign tell us? What does this sign, because signs point you somewhere, don't they? They direct you somewhere. What does this sign direct us to? Friends, can I say this is the sign, the quintessential sign, the sign so that you can believe in fact, it's the critical thing to believe. If I press pause on that for a moment and uh, I asked you to finish off this sentence for me, right? I don't want you to call out. I want you to finish it off in your mind, right? But here's the way the sentence goes, okay? I like to think of God as, you know, dot, 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 dot. You know, I like to think of God as, what would you provide as the finishing phrase or end of that sentence or the word that finishes that off. Yeah, maybe you'd say, I like to think of God as, as love. Anyone come up with that? You can respond if you did, you know. Yeah, well, you don't have to. Uh, or maybe you'd like to think of God as all-powerful or generous or kind or merciful or gracious or light. You know, maybe some sort of concept like that. But I suspect none of us immediately thought of this. I like to think of God as the judge of the whole world. The judge of the whole world. It's not where we, we naturally go. And yet, can I say that's the point of comparison with Jonah that Jesus is trying to make as the critical nature of the sign we need to believe? Jonah ignores God and he runs away. And God brings this raging storm on the ship that he's trying to escape on. And Jonah is thrown overboard. He's drowning. And then he's swallowed up by this great sea monster. And he experiences 
the forces of the judgment of God. That's what's going on at this point. And in due course, he's spat up on a beach and he goes off in complete submission that God gave him to go to Nineveh. And there he speaks the briefest word of judgment to the Ninevites, calls upon them to repent. And that's exactly what they do. They repent. He says, 40 days and God's judgment will come upon you. And they turn. Can I say, if, if we ignore God, should we expect anything different? Really? Has God changed in his very nature or his attitude towards people who reject him over the millennia? Can I say God judges sin and he judges sinners? How do you know? How do you know that for certain? Well, it's verse 41. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a few huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah experienced the judgment of God, so Jesus experiences the judgment on his very self. If I flip forward in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, Jesus at that point is on the cross, and on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Friends, none of us treat God properly. And that deserves judgment. It deserves separation from God. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took the judgment for the sin of the whole world, yours and mine. You see, the cross is actually the greatest sign of God's judgment ever and his wrath against humanity. Yeah, my taxi driver, he said that it would be fair for him and he wanted to take the punishment for his own sins on himself. At one level, he's right. And unless he turns to Jesus, he will bear the consequences of his own sin and the judgment of God. That'll be the only option. I mentioned uh, earlier in this chapter, uh, Jesus talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to dive into that text in great details in verses 31 and 32. But you understand uh, the nature of Jesus' um, provision for the sin of the whole world, the, the rejection of God's plan in the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning of time to provide reconciliation with himself through the cross. Uh, the one on whom the Spirit dwells, you know, we see that from Matthew chapter 3, you reject him. And this, this pinnacle of the work of God by his spirit in this world, there is nothing left, you know, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ. There can't be forgiveness if you reject his Messiah. No hope. But it's also a sign of God's mercy. Uh, Jonah was swallowed up by a great sea monster. It is a sign of the judgment of God. But actually, the sea monster is the means of his rescue as well. 
It uh, operates in both directions. Jesus' death on the cross, it is a sign of God's judgment, but it's also the means by which God provides rescue for his people and mercy. But how does this sign of Jesus' death, does it, does it, make, does it make sense to you? Can I say it didn't to my taxi driver friend? Not at all. Right? It was a great puzzler for him. And I, I do get why in sort of a general sense. I want you to imagine that, um, say, Sue and I are coming up for our 75th wedding anniversary. We're not, but just so we were, you know, and we, uh, we got an elevator to the top of the tallest building in Adelaide, which is, I think, the Frome Central Tower now. I looked it up yesterday. And I took Sue out to have a look around the city and I expressed my undying love for her just before I jumped on the edge of the building and jumped off and said, I love you, darling, I want to prove it. Oh, you know, like, you know. Um, and you would, you'd think, what a, what a crazy man. 75 years of marriage obviously has dementia, that's why he's jumped off or something. You'd like, you'd think it's just crazy for someone to do that. It'd make no sense at all and no demonstration of my love for her unless we're having a difficult marriage and she was pleased to get rid of me or something. You know, but otherwise, you know, it just would be so silly. But here's the point. Unlike me jumping off a building, it achieves nothing. Jesus' death achieves something. You see, this is the eternal plan of God to provide forgiveness and extend grace to anyone who will put their trust in him, his death for them. You see, the cross is where both the justice and the mercy of God meet. I want to ask you what you're like at reading signs. Uh, Apparently, statistically, men are pretty poor at doing it and women are much better. But I'm wondering what you're like at looking at this sign. You ever find yourself uh, looking for God to do more? You know, wishing he would? You think, oh, if God just turned up, and did the miraculous things we see Jesus doing. Yeah, healing, raising the dead, controlling nature. I think that would be a real boost for my trust in him. And, you know, I reckon, I reckon my friends would be impacted by that sort of thing. They'd be convinced. Here's the thing, of course. That's exactly what Jesus did. And lots of people didn't believe, to be quite honest. Look at verses 41 and 42 with me. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and they'll condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the end of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. Men of Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba, both of them had much less to go on than what these Pharisees and teachers of the law had, but they repented at the coming of God's promised judgment. They, they turned, they believed, they saw who God was. So with 
with the Lord Jesus in your very presence and you don't believe? Well, they'll stand up at the judgment day and condemn you. Friends, Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead so that people could have their relationship with God restored so they could be forgiven, could, could experience eternal life. Can I ask you, what more could God do? Yeah, what, what more, really? Just on Friday, uh, a friend I've known for 40 years called, he's a bit older than me, uh, just to bring me up on some family news that, that he's uh, been experiencing. His wife has had pancreatic cancer. For those of you who know uh, the prognosis of that, it's not good. And uh, she's been going through a whole range of treatments. And they, a couple of months ago, uh, the doctor said, I don't know what's going on, but you're, we can't find any sign of this cancer in your body. And they thought it was just an extraordinary thing that uh, she'd been put in that position. On Friday, uh, my friend David, he called me up and he said that they'd been um, to see their GP on Monday, got a test on Tuesday, uh, saw the oncologist on Thursday, and their cancer had spread to the liver. And there were now six spots of that cancer on the liver, so totally inoperable, uh, and the only treatment they can provide is a level of uh, chemotherapy and reading between the lines. And if you know anything about these things, we're talking probably about palliative care. When I spoke to David, he, he said, you know, it would be really good if God could do another miracle and heal his wife. But he said, but God is good, whatever happens. He's made promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been so faithful to us for decades. He's given us a secure and eternal hope in him through what Jesus has done for us. And, you know, we are totally secure today, just like we were last week. Nothing has changed. And so we've decided that Every day, we're just going to keep knowing him, trusting him for however many days that he grants to them. Friends, can I say God has proven himself completely. Here in the Lord Jesus Christ is God's unmistakable and final sign. His son went to the cross and he took the punishment for your sins and for my sins so that we can have secure relationship with God now and for all eternity. Uh, he rose from the dead as a complete proof that he is Lord of the universe and he delivers on his promises. Can I say, if you haven't believed in him and repented, do it. Because God's not going to do anything more for you. He's done what he needs to have done. And you need to put your trust in him. And for those of us who've believed, 
then what we do is we keep trusting and obeying because of this demonstrable proof, this irrefutable proof that God has provided by turning up and through Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Friends, God has passed the test and uh, there's nothing more he needs to do. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we do. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we realise that this is a word that is... Um, it's searching, it's challenging, uh, because it calls upon us to believe what you provided for us, not to go grasping around for more, but to know that you've done the more already. And Father, we pray that we'll have security as we look to the cross and what you've done for us and your son, the fulfilment of the promises of the ages in him. Father, help us to be firm and anchored strong, no matter, no matter what tomorrow brings. Uh, knowing that the key thing is that we're forgiven, uh, that we're right with you, and that nothing that's thrown up in this world can cut across that. Uh, Father, help us to keep trusting, to keep obeying, to keep loving and serving you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.